Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the world of logical fallacies with our special guest, lawyer, sport agent, and professor Amanda Segrist. Beginning with a discussion of logic and how to construct an argument, we will then move to dissect numerous ways in which people may err in their reasoning and try to persuade others to agree with them in the business and sporting world. So, If you ever wondered why so many ex-athletes argue that analysts don't know what they're talking about because they never played professional sports, or why you should be skeptical of buying a Rolex just because Roger Federer wears one, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, to help break down our topic, we are being joined by Amanda Segrist, who is an assistant professor and the program director of laws at Thomas More University in Northern Kentucky and a sport agent for KMG Sports in Cincinnati. Amanda has an undergraduate degree in sport management from Wingate University and her Juris Doctorate from Northern Kentucky University's Salmon P. Chase College of Law. After Amanda finished school, she began working for KMG Sports, an Ohio agency that has represented more than 500 athletes and coaches. I first met Amanda a few years later when she was hired at Coastal Carolina University as a professor in the Recreation and Sport Management program and assigned to teach sport law and ethics courses. During this time, Amanda and I actually had the opportunity to co-teach an ethics course together, and that's where I was first introduced to the topic that we are going to dive into today, this idea of logical fallacies. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and bring in Amanda and start our discussion. Really, the easiest way, I think, to get started with the topic is just to start maybe why you saw fit to put this into a sport management program and then also to put it into your pre-law program. Why have this topic of logic and fallacies? What was your background with it? And why do you think it's important that students learn this material? Okay. So in this topic of logic and fallacies, it relates to every field, really. It's basically just learning to think critically about something and logically about something. So I had it in sport ethics classes, but also in my current undergrad law classes. Actually, when I was an undergraduate myself, I had a professor say to me, oh, are you thinking about going to law school? If so, you should take a logic course. And in that logic course, I was introduced to fallacies. And I was like, holy cow, this is a totally different way of thinking. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's paying attention to how you're, how you're thinking and how you're reasoning. So we kind of all do it anyways, but to do it with intention is the key here. So when we talk about logic, it's an organized body of knowledge or science that evaluates arguments. We argue a lot and argument sounds like it has an negative connotation, but it doesn't necessarily because arguments are positive as well. It's just trying to make an assertion and draw a conclusion. So with logic, what we're trying to do is come up with a system of methods and principles that we use to evaluate arguments of others and to guide us in constructing arguments of our own. So when you when you talk about this and you're selling it, that idea of we argue a lot, obviously there's easy application if you think about it from a law standpoint because you're, I'm imagining you're trying to teach individuals how to create and construct an argument for the courtroom or a legal argument. I guess how else do you talk to students or tell them that they might use this idea of arguing besides in that specific setting within law? Yeah, I mean, literally in our everyday to day conversations with people, in arguments with your boyfriend or girlfriend, yeah. it's like, hold on, we're not talking about the same thing here. Or <laughs> yeah. hold on, that's not what I mean. You're distracting from this on yep. purpose, or maybe not on purpose, but that's not getting to the heart of the issue. Uh, but in a more academic setting, in every industry, every discipline, you're doing that mm-hmm. because we continually have to analyze things, we continually have to make decisions. And typically when you're making a decision, you'll have people trying to persuade it one way or the other, or even persuade yourself. What's the best decision here? What's the best choice here? So you have to be able to deductively reason through the information in front of you 
when it's persuasive in nature so that you can conclude what's what's the best, what's the most sound argument, because that's going to be the most logical and accurate choice. And so that ties closely into ethics, but also just into business decisions and, and even, like I said, personal stuff like day to day. It's funny when I teach this, how many students come back to class the next day or the next week and they're like, I was talking to my sister at lunch and she used seven fallacies in our yeah. conversation. Yeah. And I, I shared this with you, but it's that so often we, when I first learned this, which I learned this a long time ago in like high school. I don't remember the purpose behind learning it besides just to, I think, teach us how to think better, but it's never put in this argument term. But then when I first came across this topic with you, when we were co-teaching a class, all of a sudden I did the same thing that your students were doing where it's literally everyday conversation. And it can be arguing with friends about a sports topic. It can be, as you said, talking to your significant other and getting an argument with them. But it's not just finding that other people are doing it, but then catching yourself doing the exact same thing. And I remember yeah. doing it and being like, oh, I'm doing this. I hope they don't pick up on that because if they do, all of a sudden, I'm not going to win this argument anymore. Yeah. Well, and that's so interesting that you say it because sometimes we intentionally use them. And so lawyers are actually trained to use them on purpose as our politicians. And that's why they get a bad rap, right? Because it's like, <laughs> hold on, you just manipulated me. But that's so we need to be aware of when we're doing it to to manipulate an outcome and be wary of whether or not that's the ethical thing and the right thing to be doing. Yeah. So to get back into what you were, you were talking about with logic, you said logic is kind of this organized body of knowledge. What's the purpose of, of logic in developing kind of a logic system that we can use then? Yeah. And so it's not just an organized body of knowledge. It's an organized body of knowledge. And the second piece is that's used to evaluate arguments. Mm. And so it's super important that we're doing that because otherwise we have this total like truth decay and to quote our current president, fake news, yep. um, but we're not getting real solid academic intellectual sound conclusions if we're not evaluating arguments correctly. And so an argument, again, I want to reiterate, it doesn't mean that we're fighting with somebody about, no, I'm right, you're wrong. Sometimes it's even an argument yourself that you're analyzing just to say there's a premise and I'm drawing a conclusion. Am I drawing the correct conclusion? Was it sound reasoning that got me to that conclusion? If it didn't, that's really dangerous because then we start putting all this information out there that's not valid and that's, mm -hmm. that's dangerous. That's where, you know, you just say something on Twitter and everyone believes it. It's like, hold on, did you get there correctly? So correct me if I'm wrong then, the process of going through and evaluating the, the premise or the statement and the correct conclusion, is that the fallacy then? Or how, does, how do we tie fallacy into this idea of logic? Yeah, good. So sometimes your conclusion is where you went wrong, but sometimes the premises are aimed at something else. And so it, it can be an either. And so it's kind of like a math equation, which always scares students like, ah, don't do that. It scares me too. <laughs> but it's, you kind of have to look and we'll get into some examples where you say, okay, if A is B and B is C is A, C. And if it's not, then you can draw all kinds of incorrect conclusions. And if you're basing decisions off of improper conclusions or off of a bad premise, you're just going to have misinformation. Okay. And so I think a good thing to analyze here is that there's a difference between a statement that uh, it's either true or false, a statement. Okay. And so it's typically declarative. And what that means is it, it's trying to establish something. So it's something that we should be either accepting or not as fact, but that you can have a true statement or a false statement. And so it's important to say that if we're, we have a true statement or even a false one and we're concluding from that, we need to make sure, and what a fallacy is, is a defect in an argument. We need to make sure that there's been no mistake in the reasoning or, or by creating an illusion to make a bad argument appear good. Okay, so is I guess a correct way to think about it then is just another way of saying it's a fault in the argument or a fault in the conclusion that you're reaching based on an argument? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. It's a flaw in reasoning. And obviously, we all need to make sure that we're using sound reasoning, right? And so mm -hmm. a fallacy is anytime there is a flaw 
in or a defect in that argument. And the argument includes the premises and the conclusion. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of a premise and a conclusion then? Because that seems to be key is to be able to identify what it, what those are and how they're linked to each other. Sure. So I mentioned before, statements are either true or false, mm-hmm. right? And so premises are statements that are set forth for to make a claim. Give me an example. Sure. So let me first start by giving you examples of, of non-statements. Okay, um, perfect. A question. Okay, so I could ask you, how was your day? I'm not giving you a statement that's true or false there. Yeah, okay. Right? Hey, Drew, let's go to a movie tonight. That's a proposal. Mm-hmm. I think you should wear glasses. You look good in them. That's a suggestion and an opinion. Okay. Go to the store. That's a command. Oh, great. That's an exclamation. So those aren't statements. Okay. So statements are divided into one or more premises and they have exactly one conclusion. So the premises are the statements that set forth the reason or claim evidence. And the conclusion is the statement that the evidence is claimed to support or imply. And so let me give you some examples of statements and premises. Okay. All film stars are celebrities. That's a premise. That's a statement that's either true or false. Okay. Halle Berry is a film star. That's either true or false. And then the conclusion, which is either true or false, is therefore Halle Berry is a celebrity. So here the premises support the conclusion. So that's sound reasoning. That's a fairly good argument. So if I can prove it's truth or if I can prove it is not true, then it is a premise and then, then it's, it's a then it's a statement. Okay. So then it's a statement and it's potentially subject to being used as part of a fallacy. Yes, because we use statement to form our argument. Perfect. Okay. Right? And to draw conclusion. Okay. Can you give me another example maybe of this idea of premise with a conclusion? Yeah, let me give you an example of a bad argument. So the premise would be some film stars are men. Okay. Cameron Diaz is a film star. That's also a premise. The conclusion, therefore, Cameron Diaz is a man. We all know that that is not true. The premise does not support the conclusion, even though they claimed to. So that's a bad argument. Okay. Question. In in both of these, you said people are film stars. How is that a premise and not an opinion? Um, because we said all film stars are celebrities. You can either prove that to be true or okay. false. I think you could prove that to be false because some film stars aren't known as celebrities. But if you're saying, what's a film star? How do you define a star? Um, how do we define a celebrity? So you, I can take that statement and I can prove that it's true or false. So we could, in. gotcha. So if we dug into this idea of film star, we could go through and classify and say, well, film stars have, you know, individuals who make all this money or have appeared in this many films or have this much notoriety based off of Q scores or whatever. And because I can Uh use that information to support the truth of my statement, it is a premise versus your opinion. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So go ahead. Well, I was going to say some other things if we're trying to decide between a premise and a conclusion. So Mm -hmm. there are some words that are premise indicators. Great. And I'll run through the list, but then I'll, I'll give you some examples. So because, for, given that, being that, owing to, as, since. So those are all things that are kind of saying that you can infer something from it, right? So those are indicators of a premise. Indicators of a conclusion might feel a little more common to us. Thus, therefore, consequently implies that as a result in conclusion, hence, those are indicator words for conclusion um, that we can conclude if it's true or false. Okay. The trick then would be if I'm formulating an argument, let's say that Based on my job, I have to give a proposal and I have to argue for more money to be spent on a new football stadium for my university. I Uh should, as I'm organizing this, and you said I can use potential fallacies we'll get to later to help me, but I can organize and use these specific words, this specific language to make a premise. Uh I can use, I think you said, since or for or owing to, I can use that language at the beginning or within the structure of my sentence to formulate that and then use conclusion indicator words like therefore, thus, and that helps me to formulate a statement that is either true or false, but as we'll learn Mm -hmm. here in a bit, I can do that in a way that can potentially benefit me if I understand how to use fallacies 
to my advantage. Yeah. Yes. And so typically, if you're the one asserting an argument, you're trying to get your others to buy into your conclusion. Okay. Right. And yeah. so yeah. your premise needs to be sound and it needs to be easy for people to follow. It, it, you know, they need to say, okay, I can accept that statement is true. I can accept that statement is true. And so, therefore, my conclusion okay. follows that that's true as well. The way you just said that, I think of almost like I'm trying to make my case in court. If I can get you yeah. to start following along and I, and I make a statement, and you're like, well, yes, the person was there that night. Okay, well, that's a true statement. And if I make enough true statements and you're following along, then I hit them with the therefore, and all of a sudden my conclusion is something that supports me in my argument. All those little statements along the way that they believe to be true help me in making them believe that my conclusion is also true. Is that right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Because that's what we're trying to do. And again, back to our introduction where we talked about that logic aids us in forming sound arguments. And so you might have all these things in your brain, but you've got to learn to organize them. And writing is really just critical thought. Yeah. You're just doing it in an organized manner because you've got to put it down on paper and you've got to organize it so that the conclusion follows from the premises that you're asserting. Yeah. And it almost goes back. I mean, I remember, gosh, I can't remember middle school, elementary school, when you're talking about like a five paragraph format back in the day. And they always start, you know, yeah. trying to make an argument. They say, make your strongest argument first, and then you yeah. continue to make them throughout, but you start with your strongest. But that seems now that you're saying this to be kind of along the same lines. I'm making that strongest argument first. Because if I can get you to buy into that first argument, then getting you to buy into the second argument is a little bit easier because you've uh -huh. already bought into the first and now the second one's. And so the weakest argument you would make last because they've already bought in along the way. And then you followed up with the last paragraph, your conclusion. Well, if I can make you believe yeah. those middle three paragraphs, you're going to buy into what I'm saying. So I, I never even thought of it in that way, but it does kind of tie back to even that general structure that they talked about. They just didn't obviously use that terminology. Yeah, it, it sure does. And that's what law school teaches law students as well as to come in with your strongest argument first. And that's exactly why, because it helps people follow along with your logic and your reasoning. Yeah. Um, and it buys some credibility. If you, if you have logic that people can follow and it can organize their brain in a way that goes, okay, I can accept that. And that makes sense how that flows from that. Okay. I accept your conclusion. It almost makes me rethink. I feel like when I'm going to go back and watch all these legal shows about how they're making the mm -hmm. argument just to like, I feel like I'll be sitting there evaluating it from that standpoint. And they're, none of the shows are actually probably that accurate to what law really is, but there it, it's still, <laughs> you can see that idea of, you see it all the time in these shows where they, you make, you ask, you ask the witness very simple questions that if you know the answer of you're building all of that into a conclusion. Now that conclusion might not come to later on, but it makes sense now to why they do that, why you ask simple questions, very direct, to get that basic information out there that is factual that you can then use for your benefit. Yes, exactly. And then that's a perfect segue to start talking about some of this. Because Great. if you have a weak argument, you might need to start using some fallacies to distract from your weak <laughs> argument that you're trying to win. So I think we've done a good job of hitting on this idea of logic and really driving home the idea of what a statement is, we look for both a premise and a conclusion. And the idea that we can use this in both good arguments and bad arguments, where we have two premises that are correct, mm -hmm. that lead to a correct conclusion. But we can also have mm -hmm. premises that are both correct and lead to a faulty conclusion. So mm -hmm. can we start getting into some maybe specific type of fallacies then to really start to progress the conversation? Um, and I think the way you normally teach it is you normally start with formal logic and formal fallacies. Yep. So could you just maybe describe those to us and what they are? Sure. So there's a difference between formal and informal. And informal gets to be a little more fun. But formal, if you can follow me on this, it's, this is what I was talking about with kind of that math formula almost. Okay. So it's a lot of if-then statements, and those are called conditional statements. And so if the, if the team scores a goal, then mm -hmm. the crowd will cheer. Okay. If A occurs, then B occurs that can also be reversed into what's called a contrapositive. So if B doesn't occur, then A didn't occur. So if the crowd didn't cheer, then the team must not have scored a goal. Gotcha. So these are these if-then 
statements that, um, again, are called conditional statements. And you can always conclude the contrapositive and deduce that that is accurate. But it's the only accurate information you can conclude from an if-then statement that's true. So you can't draw other information from there. So, so a common one is like, whenever it rains, I go to the mall. I'm at the mall. Does that necessarily mean that it's raining? No, because you could be at the mall right. for any reason. Exactly. I didn't say I only go to the mall when yeah. it's raining. Right. And so these are like technicalities. I, I tell my students that this is fun to learn because it's like when you were a kid kind of being bratty with an argument. <laughs> like, oh, you said, yeah. you said, can I? Of course I can, but may I yeah. or will I? You know, yeah. and but we need to do this with intention. We really, our words matter, especially yeah. in an academic setting and in a business setting. Well, that's, it's the word, words and language matter. I, I try to stress this with students all the time. It doesn't matter what format, if it's an email, if it's conversation, our words have meanings and use of the wrong language or the wrong words can all of a sudden distort what I'm trying to say or what I'm trying to, to purvey to a client, to a boss, to a colleague. So we have uh-huh. to be careful, and, and this just drives home the point of really thinking about that, because that's a good example of when it rains, I go to the mall, I'm at the mall. It doesn't mean it's raining, but it'd be really easy to come to that conclusion if you're not paying really close attention to the words and the order that things are happening. Right. You have to think critically. And before you ask why you would teach this in something other than a, than a law class, well, mm-hmm. because it's teaching us to communicate effectively. And yeah. so just like you said, you need to be able to relay that to a boss, a colleague, a potential client, yeah. whatever it is, even to yourself. <laughs> you yeah. need to be able to communicate <laughs> your thoughts effectively. Yeah. So, okay, so I have another fun formal one here. Okay. Well, I think it's fun. So this is more the formula thing here. So a formal fallacy is one that may be identified by merely examining the form or the structure of an argument. Okay. And so if anybody's listening and wants to write this down, you would see it visually might might help you a little bit. But okay, all A R B, mm-hmm. all C R B, therefore all A R C. Okay. So let me the the first two statements you made are the premises, correct? Mm-hmm. So yes. you made you made two premise statements that we can either prove are are factual or non-factual. And then mm-hmm. the third statement you made was our conclusion. Yes. And so the conclusion can be true or false. Mm-hmm. How we figure out if the conclusion is true or false is to, it doesn't necessarily mean that premise A was true, premise B was true, therefore the conclusion is true. That doesn't necessarily mean that. Okay. It doesn't always follow. So we need to make sure that the form of the argument, the structure of the argument is valid. So this is, it's kind of going back to, and this is way, way far back, but geometry, where high school geometry, all you do is proofs. You're given yeah. statements, and you're literally going through and learning how to prove that that statement is factual. Ah, that's a great comparison. And even, and you said math, which has got me to think of that. So like this idea of, you said all A, R, B, all C, R, B all a r c that's that's in math that's the transitive property it's the idea that a number equal to another number is also equal to a third number but Mm -hmm. in math that's true it's a well-accepted principle in a Mm -hmm. formal fallacy is it always true you said no right so let's plug words into it okay let's say that a is athlete okay b is in shape Mm mm-hmm and C is Olympian. Okay. So if all A are B, we're saying all athletes are in shape. Mm-hmm. All C are B means all Olympians are in shape. The conclusion, all A are C, would then read thus, all athletes are Olympians. Which is obviously we not true. We know that's not true. Right. It's overbroad. But the, the first two statements you made, we could prove, in theory, people would argue, but you could prove that all athletes are in shape, at least to a degree within their discipline. You can prove that all Olympians, again, are in shape. So we have two mm-hmm. factual statements, but the way mm-hmm. we add them together, it's a faulty argument. Exactly. And it'd be easy to be distracted by that because you're going, oh, that's true and that's true. So yeah. that must be true. 
Yeah. But you have to be careful and notice where that B is. That B, and if, if you wrote this down, you'll notice that the Bs are right on top of each other. So if you go all A or B, oh, yeah. the next line you say all C or B, you conclude all A or C. That doesn't work because you're not making that connection yeah, B, with that B. So that I didn't even think about it. So B is not in my conclusion at all. We're basically just throwing any word in there. So I could say like all athletes are purple and all Olympians okay. are purple. All athletes are Olympians. That's that's the same thing. Yeah. That idea of that purple, it could I could literally put any word in there and I'm not taking that word, whatever it is, into account in the conclusion. Right. So if there's no connection with that, then we're missing it. Now what if, what if we say all A are B, all B are C, therefore all A are C. So based off of what we just said where in that first form, the Bs were on top of each other. We could use any word, so it didn't mean that it added up. But in the second one, the Bs aren't on top of each other. If you wrote that out, all A are B, all B are C, they're, they're catacorners. So we're actually connecting the, the thought process from A to B, from B to C. So it seems in my mind that we should be able to then just draw a straight line from A to C. So I would yeah. say that you could do that as a valid form of an argument. Exactly. And that would be a valid okay. argument. And so I don't know what we could plug into there. This is off the top of my head and we'll see if it works. Let's say all A or B, what's something true? All um, apples are fruit. Okay. Right. So then we need. You could say like all fruit is sweet. Yes. Then you could say, let's conclude that all apples are sweet tasting. And yeah, that's valid reasoning if both of those premises are true. So if I can prove that the first premise is true, which we can, mm -hmm. it is a true statement. If I, if I can prove that the second statement is true, that um, all fruits are sweet, if both of those are true, then my conclusion is also going to be true. Yes, because the form of the argument allows for that, because there's that connection between B. And again, to take it back to writing, that's why you need transition statements. That's okay. why you need arguments that flow from each other mm -hmm. and to make connections, not just to assert things. You actually have to make the connection. Again, it ties back to the idea of words and how we structure a sentence then really matters. And yeah. I can see very easily, because what we're, we're talking about here is it's a really minor thing. It's where we place that B word in the argument. Is it last in, mm -hmm. in the first statement and first in the second statement? That makes a big difference, but... If we're going through something quickly or we're in a discussion with someone and maybe not writing it down, I can see how you can very easily fall for the first one that we talked about. That's that faulty logic because yeah. people, the first statement was true. The second statement was true. I'm not maybe paying attention to the order of the words within those statements. And so I just buy into the next. Yeah. It really hits on why it's important to not only learn it, but practice looking for it probably practice looking for it when yeah. you're watching the news, when you're listening to debates, yeah. um, when you're listening to sport arguments on TV. Well, again, I want to reiterate that it's not always intentional. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's you don't even you're not even aware you're doing it. And so you need to catch yourself and go, you know, should we spend money on this? Because this is happening. So yeah, that flows from this. You need to make sure that's accurate because you might just be missing something. Yeah. And the probably only way to do that is through practicing because I can see myself really getting caught up and all of a sudden I'm, I'm not practicing looking for this and so after a little while of listening to an argument I probably am not consciously thinking about it and I just can get swept right into the argument yeah so we said those are are more of a structural argument fallacy is there any other fallacies that we consider formal fallacies or is it better now to maybe get into talking about some of the informal fallacies we can get into informal fallacies but I do want to make one more point here on okay. a note that I have Mm -hmm. sometimes even when there's sound reasoning in order to detect the fallacy you have to know a little something about the topic okay so the structure might be good but then at some point common sense kicks in right a funny example would be the brooklyn bridge is made of atoms atoms are invisible therefore the brooklyn bridge is invisible that is silly oh. because we know the brooklyn bridge is very visible right yeah but the, structurally though it gets to that one that we talked about a b b c a c yes but you also have to apply basic logic yes 
Exactly. And we have common sense that we know that bridges are large physical objects. <laughs> and we also know that yeah. atoms are invisible because they're so tiny. And yeah. so, yeah. It's not just that we have to check the two premises to make sure both of them are, are true. We can't just say, oh, it's the correct A, B, B, C structure. We prove both of those. So obviously the conclusion's true. We still have to check that conclusion, even after we've already checked the structure to make sure the conclusion that they're making makes sense. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, so is that everything you can think about with formal fallacies? Yeah, I think that's about it. Okay, so then let's transition then and let's talk some about informal fallacies. Can you maybe start by just saying, like, overall, what's the difference? We know you, you said that a formal fallacy, we are basing it on kind of the structure of the argument. Um, mm -hmm. I, is the opposite than the informal fallacy? It's not based on the structure of the argument? Or, or what's the difference between the two, just generally speaking? Yeah, informal fallacies don't look at the structure of the argument. There's categories. There's like fallacies of relevance. How relevant is the argument or the premise or the information? Okay. We have fallacies of distraction where we're purposefully trying to distract you okay. from maybe the weak argument that we have. And so there's different types. There's tons of these too, but today I've kind of just picked some of the more common ones and some okay. of my more favorite ones because they're kind of fun. These kind of play to emotion more than they do mm. the structure of the argument. Okay, so that's a good dichotomy to have. So why don't we just, you said you had some specifically picked out. Why don't we just dive in and why don't you tell us maybe the first type of informal fallacy that you want to talk about? Okay, cool. So some of the fun ones I picked, a fallacy of relevance is an appeal to motive. And within that appeal to motive, you're appealing by force or with scare tactics. And so... This is a threat, really, and it doesn't always mean a physical threat, <laughs> but it occurs whenever an arguer poses a conclusion to another person and tells that person, either implicitly or perhaps explicitly, that some sort of harm or bad will come to them if they don't accept the conclusion. Okay. And it doesn't necessarily mean physical harm. You had better agree that the new company policy is the best way to go if you expect to get that vacation approved next week. So I actually, as you're describing it, I'm pretty sure I did this last week. I have the big, <laughs> big fantasy league I'm in. There's we have it's a 32 person fantasy league. It's massive. It's insane. But I'm in charge of running it, and I sent out an email to everyone, and I said, if you don't go on and sign up for the league by tomorrow, I'm kicking you out. Yeah. So so would that be an an appeal to? appeal to motives a, a scare tactic there's it's not really harm that yeah. i'm doing it and to be honest i'm not going to kick them out all i was trying to do is motivate them just enough from the email to get them to do what i wanted them to do at that minute exactly you're appealing to their to motives through force right or yeah. through a scare tactic yeah so what we need to do and that's okay to do that because hey did it work well, it worked for like half of them. The other half still didn't work, but at least worked yeah. somewhat. So it was at least a little bit successful. It was better than me just saying, hey, guys, for the eighth time, I'm pleading with you to go on and do what I'm asking. I was kind of tired of doing that and sending all these emails. So I thought I need to motivate them somehow. Maybe if I threaten this, they'll respond to me. Yeah. See, and so there's, a, there's again, an example where even if you know that that's not valid reasoning, sometimes mm -hmm. we use it anyways because we're trying to persuade or or get people to do something. And so, you know, how, and I love that you brought up proofs before when you were talking about math. math. Yep. <laughs> um, so in order to proof a fallacy, what you have to say, okay, hold on, I need to point out the flaw in logic here. And so to proof and appeal to force would be identify the threat and the proposition and argue that the threat is unrelated to the truth or falsity of the proposition. So, you had better agree that the new company policy is a good way to go if you expect your vacation to be approved. Well, I need to point out that, okay, my vacation being approved has no bearing mm -hmm. on whether or not the new company policy is a good one or not. That makes sense. Another one I think yeah. of that we use as professors, um, like I always tell students and I'm teaching an in-person class, like if you don't come to class, you're going to fail the course. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm saying that, to kind of try to scare them a bit, but try to motivate them to actually come to class. And 
what I tried to explain is if you don't come to class, yes, you can read the book and yes, you can see the lecture notes online, but you're missing the conversation that's occurring. You're missing us talking about the assignments. You're going to miss all that and you're not going to be able to pass. In reality, that's not true. Unless I have an attendance right. policy, which specifically says you have to be there, you can pass exactly. a class and never show up if, as long as you're there for the exams and you turn the assignments in. Exactly. That's a perfect example. And I love that you, with the professor example, because then uh, the next one is uh, very common in, in professor-student settings. Okay. Another appeal to motive is an appeal to pity. And this is when the student comes to you and says, Professor Seegers, I really need an A in this class or my GPA is going to drop too low and I'm going to lose my scholarship and yep. then I won't be able to attend here anymore and then I can't achieve my dreams of becoming a doctor. Yep. And so what happens with an appeal to pity is when the arguer attempts to support a conclusion by just evoking pity from the, from the listener. And this pity might be directed towards the arguer or even towards a third party. Um, but in order to prove this, you identify the proposition and the appeal, and you argue that the pitiful state of the arguer has nothing to do with the <laughs> truth of the proposition, right? And yeah. so I can say to a student, well, it's not just my class that's going to make your GPA drop this low. And it's not whether or not you need an A in here because you need to keep your scholarship. It's you're not getting an A in here because you didn't pass this exam. You didn't turn this in. Yeah. You didn't. Yeah, that is, we get that so much as professors. I mean, I find it funny because I, I've, all professors have had this where a student will come in and say, we need to get this grade or, or else we can't get into grad school or else we're going to lose our scholarship. I've had students tell me if they don't pass my class, they're going to get kicked out of the country because they're on a, a visa and their GPA is falling too yeah. low. It makes you feel really bad. And I think a lot yeah. of times new professors are more likely to give into it. But then I go and I'll pull up their transcripts because most schools, I, your professors have access to all that information. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Your GPA is too low because it's a 2.0 because you failed this class and this class and this class and this class and this class. So it's not my specific class that got right. you your GPA that's too low. It's all of these classes. Right. To your point, the argument, it's not, yes, my class might be a part of that now, but... My class is not, is not the entirety of what your conclusion is. Right. So it's not sound reasoning. And, and in a business context, an example would be, um, we hope you'll accept our recommendations. We spent the last three months working extra hard on them. Um, that's, that's a good again, one. appeal to pity, right? Feel bad that I worked so hard on this. Well, it still might be total crap. <laughs> I don't care yeah. that you worked extra hard on it for three months. That doesn't that isn't sound reasoning for me to then go, Oh great. Now I'm going to accept your recommendation. Yeah. This sounds bad. I've, I've used that too with <laughs> research projects that you're working on and normally research projects, you're emailing back and forth the uh, different versions of the paper and maybe you're behind a deadline for something you're supposed to get it to your, your research colleague by. And in the yeah. email, yeah, I'll put something like, gosh, I've just been slammed with, with stuff outside of work. You know, I've been slammed with travel or, you know, right now, mm -hmm. coastal Carolina, there's a hurricane coming through this hurricane's really affecting this. And, and the reason I'm doing that is to try to disarm the other person because I've yeah. missed, you know, I've missed a deadline. I'm the one that's at fault here. I'm trying to disarm them and make them have pity for me at least a little bit to think, okay, like I get it. He was busy. It's okay. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't mean those things aren't true. It yeah. is true that coastal has hurricane stuff going on right yeah. now. And but it, so the premise can be true, but the sound reasoning of getting there is is an appeal to motive and yeah. that's playing on emotion and, and that's not sound reasoning. How about you give us another fallacy, informal fallacy? Okay. Let's see what else. So um another appeal to motive is the appeal to popularity. Okay. And looking at some of my slides here, I have a picture of Taylor Swift pouring a Diet Coke. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's where we all want to be loved and esteemed and popular yep. and accepted. And so this pulls at our heartstrings for that. It pulls at our desires. Um, I, I like to call this one the mob mentality. Mm -hmm. So as simple as seeing in a commercial that Roger Federer is representing a Rolex watch. Yep. Well, 
if you want to be like Roger Federer, then you should probably buy and wear a Rolex watch. And that's, that's the appeal to our motions of trying to appeal to the majority of people and, and to popularity. So with appeal to popularity, you're describing it's basically all sponsorship in sport is appeal to popularity. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. like I, I try to associate with greatest living American Tom Brady. Like I'm appealing to his popularity <laughs> and or yeah. even if I'm trying to associate with the Patriots or the NFL, I'm appealing to the popularity of that league. I'm using the popularity of that league to get people to buy my beer or my Coke or my shoes. Right. But it works. Well, and so there may be nothing wrong. Sure, it yeah. works, and there may be nothing wrong with it. If I think Roger Federer is awesome, it's probably valid that I do. My God, he's an all-star athlete. Yeah. He's good-looking. He's a good yeah. humanitarian. Yeah. So maybe he is great, but does it make me – any more like him to also wear a Rolex well perhaps to some people then go for it but you just need to recognize that that's how you're being convinced rather than that there was some logic behind the conclusion so popularity makes sense with sponsorship the other place my head goes which annoys me as a professor is you get people talking on tv about a topic that they don't know anything about but they're a famous person so you know, I research a lot of the NCA and I, I know the literature on it very well. I know the history. I know the structure. I know issues that they're going with. And they have some former athlete that just graduated on there and he might be really popular and he's talking about these issues, but the person doesn't understand everything that's going on, but people are listening to him because he's famous and they're acting like this person is an authority on it, but he, they're not. He's just really famous. Exactly. And that's actually a different, it's similar and students confuse these a lot, okay. but it's slightly different. There's one that's called appeal to unqualified authority. If Kim Kardashian is telling me who she thinks should be president, okay. is she a polling list? Is she an expert? You know, and, yeah. and so same thing you're saying, like we've got a former athlete that's because it appeals to the people or that mob mentality, all of a sudden we're claiming them as like a cited authority, but they lack credibility on being an expert on that topic. So the difference between those two then would be the appeal to unqualified authority is when a person is making statements about something. And so not yeah, versus exactly. appeal to popularity is Roger Federer saying, Hey, I have this watch. You should wear this watch. Right. Right. Or if everyone's doing this, you should do it too. Yes. Okay. Exactly. To me, it makes sense because one is dealing with a person trying to act like they're an authority on something. The other one is just a, per yes. a person using the fact that they're popular to try to get other people to do something. Exactly. Perfect. Exactly. And, and sometimes those things can overlap and, and it's okay to maybe say it's a little of both even. So like yeah. an example would be Kim Kardashian wants to tell me what makeup to wear. Well, she probably is an expert on that, or at least her sister Kylie Jenner, I guess would be. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Kim Kardashian probably shouldn't be telling me who to vote for for president because that is just unpopular. So do what I'm saying, but also I'm asserting that I'm qualified enough to be saying this. And listen, you might be an expert in something else, but then that's where it can be a quick little pull the wool over someone's eyes. They might be a clinical psychologist, but we're talking about something medical. And it's like, oh, you're still a doctor, but that's yeah. not an expert. Uh, that's a good example. So how do we then, to go, go back to the appeal to motives, how do we, what's the proof for that? How do we identify that? What do we look for to identify when that's happening? So you need to identify the play on your emotion that it's having, whether it's to make you feel elite in, in with the in crowd or to make you feel sorry for someone or um, be, because everyone else is doing it. So you need to just watch that that's the play on your emotions or I'm scared into doing it. Those are really the emotional ones. And you just need to, and, and this is probably advice people receive all the time, don't make emotional decisions. Yeah, sometimes you need to sleep on it or stop and think or take the emotion out of it and then say, why am I agreeing with this conclusion? Are my emotions being played with or is this really the deductive reasoning? Is this really what I think, feel, believe? Perhaps I do want to drink Diet Coke because Taylor Swift does because I think she's fabulous and <laughs> I want to be the same as her and yeah. I want to have her same health and, and diet and whatever. Then maybe, maybe I'll choose to drink Diet Coke because of her. But I just need to be aware that it's playing on my emotions. 
And so to, since we were also talking about unqualified authority there, what's the proof for that fallacy? That one, you have to make sure that the person who is claiming it, that's citing it, is really an authority in that field, or that there is a general disagreement among the experts in the field on this point that no one's actually okay. a qualified authority on it. Gotcha. What other fallacies? So we've hit on uh, scare tactics. We've talked about appeal to pity. We just hit both appeal to motives and appeal to unqualified authority. I like the fallacies that are changing the subject. And we get into here, this is a super common one, an argument against the person. And so you attack the person rather than the argument. This one always involves at least two people. Okay. And one of them asserts an argument. And the other responds to that argument, not by addressing the argument itself, but rather addressing the person who said it. So you say, I shouldn't drink, but you haven't been sober for more than a year. Well, you drinking (laughs) has no bearing on whether or not I should or shouldn't, right? Yeah. Maybe I'm an alcoholic. And so if, if you are or aren't also, that doesn't impact whether it's true that I am or not. So it's, it's almost like you're trying to discredit the authority of the person to make the claim. Yes, but it's not even so much their authority that we're trying to discredit. We're trying to discredit their character or their circumstance. Gotcha. Again, in the courtroom, this is this is why you bring in character witnesses? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And so it's like, oh, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, yep. <laughs> I think you're the one who coined this when we when we talked together, Drew. You need to recognize that even crazy people can make a good point. So hot topic right now is Donald Trump. And yeah, he says a lot of idiotic things, but that doesn't mean that everything out of his mouth, you need to say, oh, that's not true because he's an idiot. You need to recognize that you've got to analyze that for what it is and what he says to decide and determine if it's valid. Well, it almost deals with the idea of prejudice against the person, which I don't know if that is, is a name of a fallacy or not, but the idea that I already have a constructed view of people based off of past experiences and or maybe famous people based off what I see on TV. And mm-hmm. if I completely discredit a person based off of what they're saying, like let's say I completely discredit what Trump is saying because he's made all these crazy statements, and then I just start discrediting everything that they're saying, yeah. they could be getting some good points in or they could be making a couple good ideas. But so often right. I feel like we as a society develop that viewpoint and we just go with it forever. Yes. And we have to be very careful of that because you've used a great word saying bias. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have our, our biases and, and some we're aware of, some we aren't. It comes from experiences and, and maybe a person has acted like a total idiot. So maybe it's valid that you think they're a total idiot, but mm-hmm. that can't be the reason that you dismiss their argument you need to analyze the argument for itself as if it came from someone else. Um, I feel like this one is used by people all the time on talk shows, whether it's sports talk or political talk shows, but whenever they're arguing, they always start to go after the person. I feel like one in sports that's common is, well, you never played in the NFL or you never played in the NBA. What do you know? It's like, well, I, I understand that point. Okay. Well, yes, you didn't play in the NBA or you didn't play in the NFL. And maybe a person who played in there would have more knowledge base But that doesn't mean that just because you didn't play doesn't mean you can't know what you're talking about. Exactly. And we have to be really careful of that and look at the argument itself rather than necessarily the person who's saying it. But again, it's close relatable to the unqualified authority topic because you need to make sure that they actually are an authority on it. And if not, then I just need to look a little closer at at what they're saying. Okay. So what other informal fallacies? Um, So false cause is one that's pretty good. It occurs when the cause of something is incorrectly identified or perhaps purposefully portrayed that way. And so an example would be like showing a chart that shows how temperatures have been rising over the past few centuries, Mm -hmm. while at the same time, the number of pirates in the world have decreased. (laughs) So therefore, pirates must... (laughs) The, the reason that the, the global warming is happening and global warming is a hoax because pirates must have cooled the world, you know. And yeah. so you have to identify that there's a total lack in connection between those two things. And so it's a false cause. And I mean, less of a silly example, more easily said, is just that sometimes things are just a coincidence. So I love this one because it ties in really closely to my roots as in research. And we always tell students when we're teaching research is 
correlation is not causation. Because two things are occurring simultaneously doesn't mean one caused the other. And there's a whole bunch of really famous examples in research. The one I like to point to is as the amount of ice cream that a society eats increases over the course of the year, so too do the number of deaths from people drowning. So <laughs> fallacy would be, therefore, ice cream causes people to drown. Exactly. But, Which is silly. Yeah, <laughs> it makes no sense. And... If you just peel it back one layer and you say, well, why do you think the amount of ice cream eaten increases over the course of the year? It's because it gets hotter out. In the middle of the year, it gets hotter, so people are eating more ice cream because it's hot. Well, why do drownings increase? Because it's hotter out. As the temperature increases, more people are going swimming. These two things are happening, but there's a third thing that we're leaving out of the discussion. There may be a fourth or a fifth or a sixth thing that we're leaving out too, so... This is one that I think people do all the time is they say, well, these two things are related and they seem like they make sense together. So I'm going to say one cause the other. Yeah. And I think that's great to say you've got to pull it back one layer and say, is this really the cause? Yeah. And if it's not, then we need to say, well, what else is, is missing here? Yeah. So the other one that you have down here is the idea of the hasty generalization. Can you talk to us about that one a little? Yeah, this is a quick and easy one, but very similar. Again, um, the size of the sample is too small to support the conclusion. So if an Australian pickpocketed me one time, I can't just assume that all Australians are thieves. <laughs> and so um, you have to just be careful. This is stereotyping and it comes gotcha. back into some of the bias that we talked about. But if a sample size is too small, then a formal proof of it would say we need a mathematical calculation and look at um, probability and then, you know, go from there. But otherwise, you have to rely on common sense and say that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't trust any Australian. Okay, I think I got that one. But the next one you have down is one that confuses me a lot. And it's one that people will hear oftentimes, maybe when they're listening to a debate or when they're watching the evening news and that's someone saying that something is a straw man argument so could you explain to us what is a straw man what's a straw man argument and how does that tie into this idea of fallacies that we're discussing okay great so it's called a straw man because um it's it's saying that basically i'm creating a scarecrow that's easier to kill and attack than a person right and so we're we're saying we're, what we're doing is we're attacking an argument that's different and weaker than what the argument actually is. And you're, you're often misinterpreting that argument on purpose to make it easier to attack. And so it's kind of pulling a once over on someone because it feels as if it's related because you were really closely relating it. But it's an entirely different topic. One of the most classic examples of this in American history is the O.J. Simpson trial. And the defense knew that, yikes, there's some bad damning evidence <laughs> against, against yeah. O.J. And so what they did was genius. They drew attention to a related argument, but not the argument of whether or not he was guilty. They made an argument of racial prejudice and police corruption. Now, that's not what was really going on. We're trying to say the real issue, did he kill Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman? But instead, we're saying, oh, look, the police are corrupt and people are racist in this country. That's an easier argument to attack because mm -hmm. that's something that gets people a little more up in arms. And there might be some truth that there was still racial tension and this and that. And so it's closely related, but they do a switcheroo on you right under your eyes and they attack that easier argument. Okay, so then when I hear straw men now, or if I hear that within an argument on a TV show, what I should think about is that the person is being accused of changing the argument, of changing the subject, and moving it so we're no longer talking about what we initially set out to. Is that right? Right. They're missing the point. Exactly. And so another example I have here is um, Will said that we should put more money into health and education. So Warren responded by saying, I'm so surprised, Will, that you hate our country so much that you want to leave it defenseless by cutting military spending. <laughs> and it's like, hold on, Will didn't say we should cut military spending. That might be an ancillary effect of putting more money into health and education. But to make the argument that Will must hate our country and wants to leave it defenseless is missing the point of, of his initial premise. 
and that's easier to attack and win that argument. And then people go, oh, wow, he won an argument. He says, smart, let's believe him. So the more you talk about it, the more and the more I think about this, the more I can think that this is used all the time. And it's used in politics, and that's just an easy point of reference, I think, because we see so many political debates or we see so much debate within the news about what's happening. But it's also used within sport talk shows all the time where people just change the argument slightly to something that they can win. And now all of a sudden we're talking, we're arguing on these things about two completely different things. And the points that are being made just don't seem to be lining up, but both people are claiming victory. So because it seems like it's used so much, do you have any tips or, or pieces of advice for people on how to recognize when this is actually happening? Listen to the conclusion that's being drawn and then say what premises supported that. So listen for those buzzwords, the therefore, the thus, in conclusion. What are they asserting? And is that what was initially at question? And if it's not, then they pulled a fast one. Okay, I think that one just really sounds like it's one that takes a little bit more practice to really hone in on and be able to pick up on it. But I like that idea that... Um, that we should focus in still on that conclusion and those premises because it really ties back into what we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. And it's very closely related to, to changing the subject. So I think we can. Yeah. Yeah. So changing the subject fallacies, what are those and what are maybe a couple examples? Yeah. So these are called red herrings or changing the subject, um, missing the point. Same as before. You're setting out to support a particular conclusion, but then a different one's drawn, even though it's, it's vaguely related. And you asked how I identify this. Well, identify that the conclusion proved by the author or arguer is not the conclusion that they set out to prove. Um, so here's an example. I think we should support affirmative action. White males have run the country for 500 years. They run most of government and industry today. You can't deny that this sort of discrimination is intolerable. Well, let's look at this. They set out to prove we should support affirmative action, but really all they ended up trying to make you agree with is that discrimination is intolerable. Agreed, but have we proven that affirmative action will actually end that discrimination? Yeah. Not necessarily. So that's a tough one to identify, but you, you just, again, have to pay attention to the conclusion that's being drawn and say, is that what was that issue originally? Is that what was set out to prove? It seems like these two, both this idea of the straw man, of constructing an argument that's easier to tackle or easier to blow over, and the notion of missing the point or changing the conversation would be really easy for someone like a presidential candidate to use in a debate to try to maybe avoid answering certain questions, but also to try to gain favor with the public. And really then, like, majority of the people just are never going to pick up on it. Right. We're getting manipulated. Exactly. So then the really interesting thing to me is that sometimes people know they're doing it, but then sometimes they have no idea, but they can still use it even unknowingly to help win the argument. So, like, the appeal to pity, for example, I've pointed to ways that, that I've done it in the past, but oftentimes when people do this, they, they kind of know what they're doing. They know that they're using this plea to try to help gain favor and either have a person take pity on them or try to win that argument like we talked about. Yes. So we just have to be careful that we're making sure that we're analyzing arguments and, and that's yeah. logic in and of itself. So. Yeah, so a couple other quick ones I want to point mm -hmm. out um, to wrap it up here are some fallacies of distraction. You might have an appeal to ignorance where um, you can't really prove it, and so it's too subjective and too broad, so it's ignorant in and of itself to even argue the point. So the argument of who's a better athlete, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, but we can't really prove that because it's too subjective. And um, so that's one. Another fallacy of distraction is a slippery slope. And this is where you get way out of whack and you're like, if we pass laws against fully automatic weapons, mm -hmm. then it won't be long before we pass laws on all weapons. Yeah. And then from there, we'll begin to restrict other rights. And then finally, we'll end up living in a communist state. Therefore, we can't ban fully automatic weapons. <laughs> and yeah. so that's a slippery slope. You just start to snowball it into a chain reaction when there's not sufficient reason to think that that chain reaction will actually take place. And, and and it's that same idea that each of those individual arguments in and of themselves kind of makes sense. So like that first argument, that idea that if we take away automatic weapons, that there might be bans on other things. That is a conclusion that 
oftentimes we can get behind and it makes sense. But the problem is, is that as we move further and further away, it seems from what you're saying from the initial statement, it gets more and more absurd. It's it's almost like that game of telephone, that idea of what we start with by the time we get to the end gets so distorted that we don't have that same argument anymore, that we don't have that same message that we began with. Exactly. And there might be some validity, just like you said, that maybe it will lead to other things. But we just need to stop and go, okay, what's the connection between step A and step B, not step A all the way down to step F? So we just need to identify the proposition that's being refuted and identify the final event in that whole series of events that we said and say this final event does not necessarily need to occur as the consequence of of that initial proposal. Okay, so I think that one is maybe a little bit easier to identify. I mean, if, if you think about it right now, especially with this gun example, they're actually using slippery slope in their arguments for not putting greater laws or greater restrictions or, or really taking up gun reform. And they're telling you that it's a slippery slope if we do that. So it's interesting because they're actually telling you the fallacy that they're using and they're still using it as justification. So I find that interesting. But you have one more, which is begging the question. And I think that's a good one to end on. So what is begging the question and maybe what is an example of it as well? So the truth of the conclusion is assumed by the premises. And so I say to my students all the time, you can't define a word with a word, right? And so... Um, this is saying we know that God exists because the Bible says God exists. Well, th that's silly because the source of authority for that is is the Bible, and yeah. that we believe that God wrote and inspired inspired the people who wrote the Bible, right? And so it's circular in argument. So you have to be careful that the conclusion can't have been drawn solely um, from the truth of the premises if the premises are what's in question. So to say, I'm not lying, it follows that I'm, that I'm telling the truth. Um, it's so circular in argument. We have to show that in order to believe the premises are true, we must already agree that the conclusion's true, and that's a dangerous circle because that's defining a word with a word. Okay. At this point, we've gone through a lot of different fallacies. I guess my last question to you is, what is the take-home message? What what would you want students to really take from this or people who are interested in learning about fallacies to take away from this conversation or this study of logic and fallacies? So I think my biggest thing, and again, going back to that argument, sounds like it has a negative connotation to it. I want you to learn to reason, not argue. And so recognizing these fallacies, both in your own reasoning and in your own formation of argument will help you learn to know better how and why you came to your conclusion or how and why you're asserting the conclusion that you are. And just be aware that it's pretty irresponsible if we don't do these and we start accepting things um, that weren't deductively reasoned. And that's how we get fake news and how we get truth decay. And, and that's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. So just recognize, even if you're purposefully using them, just be aware that you are and make sure that that conclusion you're pushing is one that you really want to be and should be pushing. Yeah, I, I like that. And I always tell students, like I mentioned in the beginning with consumer behavior, part of my goal of that course is to try to change the way they view things, try to change the way they view marketing. And the best way to do that, I tell them, is to actually put into practice what we're talking about. So when we're going into a grocery store, pay attention to things like the layout and pay attention to how they set things up to try to encourage you to spend the most money possible. And I think that same idea applies perfectly to this conversation of logic and logical fallacies. Try to pay attention, try to pick up on what's being said in arguments, whether it's watching a presidential debate or whether it's watching a sport conversation or whether it's paying attention to what's happening, as you said, in a relationship or a conversation or argument that you're having with a significant other. By paying attention and trying to pick out these things, you're going to start to learn them more and more. And that way you can learn to use them better to help you maybe win an argument or maybe not win an argument, but to try to be persuasive in the argument and try to persuade that individual to come to your side or to believe in what you're saying. 
Yes, I totally agree that win is the wrong word. <laughs> you need to make sure that if you're trying to win an argument, it's an argument that it's a conclusion that should win. And sometimes we think it is, and we need to stop and go, my own reasoning wasn't even valid in how I got there. So it's not even an argument, a conclusion that I should be pushing. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to close it out because you're right. It's not about winning the argument. It's about making the best possible case for your side that you can to hopefully try to persuade that other person. So with that said, I want to thank Professor Amanda Segris for joining us this week on the Sport Professor podcast to talk with us about logical fallacies. Hopefully, you've learned a little bit about not just logical fallacies, but about how to develop and use arguments to help persuade people to your side, as we just said. If you have any questions about fallacies or about anything that we covered today, please feel free to reach out to us at the Sport Professor on Instagram. And while you're there, consider following us to get up-to-date information and posts about what's going on in the world of sports and sport management and also to get a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. Until next time though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.